We have the privilege to come to God's Word today, so as we do so, let's ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to make us un allow us to understand. Father, would you give your aid now by the means of your Spirit? We know that unless you reveal yourself, we can't understand you right. So would you um, open yourself to us now in Jesus' name? Well, there was a, uh, a fellow we know who was raised in an African tribal religion, and he was passing by a church one day while still uh, in, in that native religion, and he heard people uh, from the church singing a song. They were singing a version of Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He didn't know anything about Christianity at that time, but immediately he recognized that they were singing about a sacrifice, nothing but the blood. He knew this was sacrifice, and that this person or being, Jesus, had been such a powerful sacrifice that all these people could claim that they had been cleansed, that they were new, that they were whole, that they were washed. Well, this fella had... He'd sacrificed many animals, and at no time had he ever felt anything like that. Uh, yes, he had felt temporarily safe from, uh, safe from his gods. But this Jesus, he realized, had to be different. This was a difference of magnitude. They were singing about having a different kind of life, and he felt he had to find out more, and he did. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this was the message. Uh, when Jesus was spending time with John the Baptist and his disciples around the River Jordan, John pointed to him and he said in the power of the Spirit, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did he mean? Somehow, this man, this is what the disciples were hearing, this man is like a lamb whose sacrifice removes the sins of the world. We've come to the Passover. In the eyes of God, it was a moment so critical that he commanded it to be remembered throughout all generations, a reenactment year by year from then on. Because through this event, he was revealing himself. Through it, he was teaching. He was teaching about himself and his relationship to his world and his relationship to his people. And it was a message to be constantly remembered such that it would form the mentality, it would shape the worldview of his people. So what God did in real time and space, a real moment, was to shape their understanding of everything, of all of life. It's that critical. 
Well, let's orient ourselves in that moment. Here we have the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had become a slave people for several hundred years. And as life for the Israelites fell into misery and was locked in there, all they had as a slave people was survival and stories, telling the stories. They told stories about promises that God Almighty had made to their ancestors. Now, they did not know how to worship Him. This was not a people who was in, in right relationship with their Creator. They didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know His ways. They didn't know what pleased Him. He had given them no law. What they had were customs being handed on, customs and stories, bits of God's natural law that had become embedded in their practice, namely that turned attention to the Creator God and to the central truth that He and His will were of greatest importance. So that honoring Him, and not other powers, honoring Him, the one Creator God, was essential. And that's about all they had. And that He had made some promises to them. Now, after 400 years, he has shown up, and their fears were wrong, they have found. that Their fears that he had no power in Egypt. Their fears were wrong that Pharaoh was sovereign in his land. Their fears that God Almighty had forgotten them, or perhaps that they had offended him too much, were wrong. He had come. He'd come to save them. Now, through a messenger, Moses, God had demanded that his people be allowed to go into the wilderness to worship him. But Pharaoh had set his will against the will of God. And we recall over the last weeks that this kicked off the Lord's demonstration of his authority, his showing his supremacy. Pharaoh's unwillingness to humble himself before the authority of God became, the, became an occasion for the creator, for the, the creator of all to show the world that he is supreme, that he's above all gods, that he's above all human authority. And so as we've seen, then as God began to demonstrate his authority, each of the plagues was a sign of his supremacy and a sign of his control over every aspect of life. So every part of creation is his. That's a message that he's giving. Lesser beings had made claims. The lesser beings had made claims on fertility or claims on the power of light and dark or claims on the power of storm. Humans also had tried to control those aspects of life by cooperation with those beings, those fallen beings. Nevertheless, the Lord shows He is the maker and ruler of all, and He never yields up sovereign authority. Despite the claims that have been made, He does not yield up His sovereign rule. But the hardened heart grew harder still, and the Lord brings the moment to this critical juncture where we are today, chapters 11 and 12. Again, before He acts, God tells His people what He's going to do. Um, and, and it's an occasion then for faith. It's an occasion for believing Him. 
So thus far, in nine different parts of his creation, he allowed a force of chaos to be unleashed. With each plague, God withdrew his restraining will. This is his power that orders and that withholds uh, unmaking. So the world that um, is ready to go into chaos, his will restrains it. This is that same chaos that he brought into order at creation by his spoken word. So like we've said, the Egyptians worshipped a God connected with each of these aspects of creation. And those fallen angels had accepted worship uh, in accordance with those parts of creation. But with each plague, the Lord demonstrated that it was at his word, only his, that chaos was restrained, that order was restored. So even the sorcerers knew, the text shows us, the sorcerers knew that their gods could wreck but not restore. So the Lord removed restraint, some form of chaos erupted, and then at his word, order was restored. And now at last, there remains the most critical, central lesson, death itself. Who holds the power of life and death? is the Lord of all. Who holds the power of life and death is the sovereign. And God is sovereign. He is the one who must be listened to. So now, ahead of time, the Lord tells Moses and tells Pharaoh that the Lord will come to judge. He's going to judge the land and he's going to judge all the people in it. He will pass through the land and the eldest son of each family will die. He lays that out in chapter 11. What this means, and what the Lord is communicating through this moment, is that every family is guilty towards the Lord God, and that He has been restraining death, always. Just as He's restrained each part of creation, He's restrained death. But every family is guilty towards the Lord, the oldest family, the oldest son in each family is the representative of the family. If you think about that oldest child receives the blessing, receives the name, that's how the lineage is reckoned. So what the Lord does here is a vivid demonstration of the consequences of the fall. The fall has affected each and every family. He had made mankind good but rebe rebellion was universal. So since Adam and Eve had accepted Satan's word, uh, his false word, and had rejected God's word, every family in all of the earth had rejected God's rule. So the problem, the problem that is apparent here in Egypt was that when God moved through any land, when God moved to any people, the rebellion was exposed and right judgment came along. Right judgment, which was death. As he had told them, Adam and Eve, the consequences of rebellion is death. So where before Adam and Eve could walk with him personally, they could walk with God because his word and life were in them. Now when his holiness comes, it meets unholiness and death is the result. So, 
Let me be clear about something here. This was a problem for the Egyptians and the Israelites. Because the Israelites, God's chosen nation, were just as subject to judgment and to death as the Egyptians. They were in rebellion. There is no one who is good, not one, the psalm says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the announcement that the great I Am would be passing through the land was a frightening reality. The holy God was coming. And anyone then, just as anyone now, who looked into his or her own, into his or her own heart found darkness there, found countless instances of self-elevation, of thinking of the self as the center of the universe, the place that belongs to the sovereign God alone, everyone then as now finds himself or herself there. So if the Lord was to unleash death according to justice, nobody makes it. Egyptian, Israelite, American, nobody makes it. But the God who made the world had plans to save it. And so here we see in chapter 12, he gave careful instructions. Chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. Each family was to choose a perfect one-year-old lamb or goat, which would uh, then be brought into their housing area. And for three full days, it would, they would to, were to give it special care so that it became a member of the household. The lamb is part of the family. And they were to arrange the households uh, for the eating of the lamb so that every person would eat. Uh, eat. When, they, when the time came for this uh, meal, every person would eat. There's no vegetarians in Israel. Every person had to eat the lamb, had to participate. In other words, what that means is by eating it, it became your lamb. It, it became your representative, not just of the family, but yours. You were participating. Along with that, instructions uh, they were to eat bread without leaven. And God told them they would be eating unleavened bread for a week, and that would be part of their annual remembrance. And it was a sign because they were leaving Egypt. They were leaving behind the leaven of Egypt. So there should be no leaven in the bread. Th these are the things, the ways of Egypt, the way of thinking. And those, those ways, those practices of Egypt, the mentality, had worked its way through them and had twisted them. And like leaven, works its way into bread. And so, as the leaven had worked, worked its way in, like, like leaven works into bread and causes it to rise, the Egyptian ways in Israel needed to be cleansed out. But most important here, part of God's instructions, the most important was the blood. Chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. Then verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, 
and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God commands them to put the blood of their lamb around the entrance to each house. And it's a sign. It's a sign. Uh, this blood for this household. And each person participated in the sign by eating the lamb. Let's, let's linger on this for a moment. Signs are visible indications of invisible things. Uh, things like intentions, uh, states of being. Um, they're signs of the will. So here at Passover, blood on a doorpost meant the family believed what the Lord had said. The blood was a sign that they believed what the Lord had said, that He is who He says He is, He can do what He says He can do, and that He will do it. So did it do them any good? You might think of the, the converse. Did it do them any good if they said they believed Him, but they got too busy to kill the lamb and mark the door? Clearly not. Blood on the door was a sign of faith. It was the one way that God offered for them to express their trust in Him in this moment. He, he could have said, uh, just pack your stuff, be ready to leave. But that's not what He said, because He offered them a meaningful sign, a sign that had resonance. This was a sign that not only enabled them to express their faith in Him, it's a way to respond, but it pointed to another death, to the death of the incarnate God Himself. This blood in Egypt pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. The sign itself is significant because death is real. Uh, it's the universal consequence of the fall away from God. It's universal. Our blood, all of our blood must cease because we claimed, along with Adam and Eve, we claimed that our blood belongs to us and that we don't depend on God. But the good news, this is the good news, the gospel, is that God personally makes a way for us to be taken out of captivity, to be taken out of enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil, to be taken out of Egypt and uh, a way for us to be relieved of the eternal judgment of sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus took judgment on our behalf. So though our lifeblood will cease, the reality of death, it will cease. His eternal life brings life to us again. This is the gospel. And it was the good news of the Passover too. When judgment comes, and it, it must come to everyone, we will all face God. God has made a way for mercy. And the way that we receive His mercy is to accept His word on it, to accept His word that He gives it. So when the crowds, you remember, ask Jesus, what do we do to be saved? 
He said, believe in the one whom he has sent. Put your faith in him and his words. And that's what the Israelites did in Egypt. And for them, just as for us, their faith laid hold of the sacrifice of Jesus. Their sign, blood on the doorpost, was pointing forward. Uh, our sign, the communion meal, points back. But both signs are pointing to the blood of Jesus, to his sacrifice. To, so to the same crowd, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life. In Egypt, unless you ate the lamb, it wasn't your lamb. You weren't participating in Passover. But the faith wasn't in the meat, and our faith isn't in the bread and the wine. Those are expressions of faith in Jesus. We believe that because Jesus died for us, because he bled, God will have mercy on us. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and he forgives anyone who will believe him and accept his sacrifice. And so uh, that's true for us. Finally, uh, back in Egypt, it was, it was true for them as well. They're believing the Lord and his word about what was happening was faith in him. And so they benefited from the sacrifice of Jesus as well. So there in Egypt, um, we don't know how many of the Egyptians heard the word and acted on it. It doesn't say, the text doesn't say. But in God's instructions for the future remembrance and reenactment, he said that any foreigner who wanted to eat the Passover, who wanted to have the mercy of God, could have it if they were circumcised and became part of Israel. So it, it remained the sign, Passover remained the sign, that anyone who believes that the Lord is the ruler of all and that he extends mercy, there is a welcome. There is a way for them to come in. Uh, I do think some Egyptians believed and, and acted in faith and followed the sign of faith. Uh, verse 38 says that when they went out that night, a mixture went with them. Uh, or uh, some translations read something like a bundle, a mixed bag of non-Israelites. They had seen that, the God, that God is the Lord over all. He displayed it clearly. But they had also found that he's merciful, that he's kind, that he's welcoming and that he gives grace to the guilty who humble themselves. So may we always remember uh, that we too are in need of that mercy. We too are in need of that grace, and he offers it. If we will stretch out in faith to the mercy of God through the blood of Jesus. Father in heaven, would you please um, give us give us humble hearts humble hearts to accept that we need your sacrifice just as the Israelites did 
just as every people has needed you. We need your sacrifice through Jesus. We need the blood. We need your mercy. And I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would assure us that we have it. That we have it. If we look to you, you do not oppose the proud. You give grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.